Good morning. Good to see you this morning. See you here this morning. Glad that you're with us. Uh, again, if you're a guest of ours, we're really honored that you chose to worship with us this morning. Hope that you're encouraged. You've already been encouragement to us. So, glad that we're all together. Heard a story about a man who took a job as a security guard at a large factory because things seemed to be missing from the factory. So his boss told him, I want you to make sure that nothing gets stolen from the workplace here. So each evening as everyone was leaving their job at the factory, he would stand there and kind of watch and maybe check people's bags or their lunch pail, make sure that they weren't helping themselves anything you know the company might own. The first night on the job, he sees this little guy pushing a wheelbarrow stacked full with newspapers. And he's thinking, okay, this guy's got something hidden in all those newspapers. So he stops him, and he kind of goes through all the papers, looking for something that he might have tried to hide inside the wheelbarrow. And the little fella tells him, hey, I just go around, and I pick up all the, the loose newspapers in the break rooms and in the cafeteria. Then I take them down to the recycler. It's not a lot of money, but, you know, every little bit helps. Second night, the exact same guy comes up, pushing a little wheelbarrow, filled up with papers. And the guy's thinking, okay, I'm going to dutifully... Check him out again. He goes through all the papers looking for something that might be hidden. There's nothing there. That goes on for a month. At the end of the month, the fellow's boss brings him in and says, we're going to have to let you go. So let me go. Why? Not one single thing was stolen the time I've started working here. His boss said, well, then how do you account for 30 missing wheelbarrows? (laughs) Now, a lot of you saw that coming, didn't you? In fact, I saw some of you lean over and tell the person sitting beside you right away, it's the wheelbarrow. Which is the whole reason I told the bad joke. Don't miss the obvious. Okay, how many times do we miss something that's just right in front of us? And we look back and we say, how did I miss that? How did I not see that? How did I not realize that was happening right in front of me? This morning we are in the third chapter of the book of First John. It is a rich, rich section of Scripture filled with some wonderful truths and some pretty deep teaching, too. And again, there's a lot of things that we could stop and talk about in the third chapter of First John. But this morning, I want to focus on the obvious. Because I don't think John wants us to miss the obvious. You'll remember in chapter 1, uh, John said there were some things that I want you to know. And to know is kind of a, kind of a major theme of the whole book. Then in chapter two, John says that there are some things I want you to do. And obedience, kind of a main theme of the whole book. Now in chapter three, John says there are some things that I want you to become. And there's a word that preachers use to kind of describe this becoming process, the word that, that the apostle Paul used, and that's the word transformation. I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you began a process of transformation. God is working on you. The Apostle Paul talks about transformation in Romans, the 12th chapter. It's a passage that we know really well. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then verse 2, you not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
Paul says that you and I can be changed. We can, we can be transformed. Now, John never uses the word transformed in his book, but he talks about it in chapter 3 a lot. So this morning, I'm going to sort of allow the Apostle John to give us some keys to spiritual transformation. And again, we're going to keep it pretty simple, because we don't want to miss the obvious. 1 John chapter 3. Go ahead and open up your Bibles there. I'll have some of these passages on the screen, but you can need your Bible open today. 1 John chapter 3 begins this way. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. The first thing that John wants us to know about this transformation process is that we are the children of God. He makes that statement in verse 1, and then he repeats that statement in verse 2. We are the children of God. You know, what's the first thing that when you have a child, you know, a brand new baby, and you take them out or take her out somewhere for the first time, maybe it's to church or out in public, or, you know, family comes over, everybody wants to see your new baby, what's the first thing people say? You know, you're there holding your little baby, and they look at that little girl, that little boy, and someone will say, oh, he has your eyes. Or she has your smile. Even though all newborns pretty much look alike, Right? But people will tell you, boy, those are your, those are your eyes. And you look down with, you know, pride swelling at your little baby and you think, he does have my eyes. She, she does sort of look like me. And it makes you feel so good, right? You see that family resemblance. So John comes along and says, how great the love our heavenly Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Don't miss what John is saying. Don't miss the obvious. It is good, good news. We are the children of God. And John understands what a blessing that is. And John understands the reality of what a statement like that means. If you go back to John's Gospel... John begins his gospel much this same way. And John says in his gospel, makes it very clear that it's because of Jesus that there's this family resemblance. In fact, let's flip backwards to the gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, he's talking about Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he's talking about the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John is saying, because of Jesus and through Jesus, we have the capacity to bear the family resemblance. The Hebrew writer will put it this way, in Hebrews chapter 2. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. From the very beginning of this story, of, of, of your story, of my story, the story of me and God and Jesus, 
This has been a love story. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this gave him great pleasure. His plan has always been to adopt us into his own family. I know that there are several parents here who have adopted children. Here's one thing I know about the adoption process. No adoption ever happens by accident. There are no accidental adoptions. Now, I've heard of some unplanned pregnancies, but I have never heard of an unplanned adoption. And you know what? I never will. Because anyone who adopts a child has put great thought into that whole process. And they adopt a child because they have this overflowing love that they just desperately want to share. And by adopting a child into their own family, that brings them great joy. It brings them pleasure. It brings them happiness. John says that we're children of God. Paul says that our adoption is through Jesus. And that that gives Jesus or it gives God great pleasure. Don't miss the obvious. God's love is, is obvious. But here's the deal. Most people have a lot harder time accepting God's love than they do God's power. Most people are, are pretty quick to understand and realize, kind of buy into the fact that God is all-powerful, and God can do whatever He wants to do. It seems that people have a harder time kind of wrapping their mind around the fact that, that God has loved me from the beginning. And of course, the reason most people, or at least a lot of people, have a hard time understanding and kind of dealing with that is because I know me, right? I know what I've done. Now, I know the real me. And the world has kind of preached to me this idea of because of love. And that's worldly love, because of. I love you because... You're lovable. Or I love you because you're somehow worthy. I love you because you have something to offer. But God's love isn't because of love. In fact, God's love is in spite of love. <laughs> I love you in spite of the fact I know who you are. I love you in spite of the fact I know what you've done. You know, we're used to hearing people kind of tell us, I will love you if... God says, I'll love you even if. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. And you say, well, what does that have to do with transformation? I think that has everything to do with transformation. I think when we begin to really understand and appreciate that we are God's children, that ought to change us. That ought to cause us to very much want to to, to, to live and to love and to act and behave and, and to think like Jesus. More and more like Jesus. That's the first thing that John wants us to understand. Here's the second thing that he wants us to understand in this transformation process. And that's the fact that we are holy. You are holy. I am holy. Now even as I say that, it sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? And it seems a little bit uncomfortable even to say that. But again, don't miss what John's saying. Don't miss the obvious. First John chapter 3, it's not on the, uh, verse 4, it's not on the screen there, but 
Look in your Bible with me. First John chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. And in Him is no sin. Of course, He's talking about Jesus. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. Talking here about willful sin. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Well, it's really quite a verse. The reason Jesus came is to destroy the works of the devil. And then look at verse 9. I do have verse 9 on the screen there. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. Yeah, I told you there's a lot of meaningful things and some pretty deep things in the third chapter of 1 John. There's some pretty deep things in that passage, but I want to sort of land a little bit on God's seed remains in him. When, when our children were very small, Martha and I decided it might be fun for us and the kids to have a garden in the backyard. So one evening in the spring, I borrowed a rototiller and I went out and dug up a little patch. Not very big, just enough to you know, plant some things and try to have fun with the kids. And we had them out helping us. We had rakes and shovels and they picked what they wanted to plant. And you know, we made the little furrow and, and had the string and you know planted the, planted the seeds and covered it over. And I got a hose and a little sprinkler and put on there. You know, We went in for the night. The next morning, all three of my kids got up all excited to go out and check the garden. What did they expect to find? Where are the peas? <laughs> Where's the corn stalks that we can run through? Let's dig some potatoes. And they get out there and it's like, wait a minute. This looks exactly like it looked last night. You know, what are you trying to pull here, Dad? It's really difficult for small children to be patient enough to wait for a seed to grow. And sometimes it's really difficult for adults to be patient enough to wait for a seed to grow. But if God has planted a seed in your heart, it's going to grow. Paul opens his letters, a letter to the church in Philippi by saying this in Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. And notice what Paul says he is confident of. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Here's something you really need to remember. Don't give up on the process of holiness. Don't give up on it. Not in your own life and not in the lives of people that you love. God's up to something. God's up to something, I believe, in the heart of every believer. Don't give up on Him. Holiness is a, is a transformation process. That's why we talk so much about the need to be in the Word. The need to, to read your Bible daily. And to study your Bible. And to be really serious about, you know, learning God's Word. Why? 
Because it's part of the process that God uses to transform us, to make us holy. Now, it's important too that you understand that John is talking about transformation and not behavior modification. Because sometimes we get the two mixed up. And sometimes we get really convicted by something and we say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. Whether it's, you know, lose weight or, you know, start exercising more or, or, you know, whatever it is, including in a spiritual way. I'm, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna will myself to do better. Malcolm Smith, a, a Christian writer, says this. The human heart does not like to keep rules. A rule-keeping mentality only brings a constant confession of failure. A decision to become holy by keeping the rules is a recipe for frustration. What he means is, if I just decide I'm going to will myself to be good, that is an unsustainable process. And he tells the story about having a dog by the name of Fred. And Fred was a pretty good dog, but he had one bad habit. He liked to kind of nip people's ankles as they walked up the driveway. And it got to be a real problem because Fred the dog was always biting the legs of the mailman. And so they realized they were going to have to do something about the dog or they were never going to get mail again. So the decision was made to put a muzzle on Fred the dog. And now the mailman's happy because he can walk up the lane and deliver the mail without getting bitten. But he pretty quickly realized that they hadn't changed the heart of Fred the dog. Fred still lusted after the mailman's legs. He still very much wanted to bite the mailman. They had changed his behavior, but they hadn't changed his desire. They hadn't changed his heart at all. God wants to change our desires. God wants to change our hearts to make us holy. He doesn't want us just to keep the rules because we're good rule keepers. What he wants us to do is fall in love with Jesus. And to understand, the more I fall in love with Jesus, the more I become like Him, the more I, the more I start to realize that everything, all these rules, there's a reason behind them. And the reason is God wants me to be happy. And God wants me to be fulfilled. And God wants me to have this wonderful life that I never could have imagined on my own. I never could have figured out on my own. And it's not about keeping rules. It's about chasing the heart of God and aligning myself closer and closer with the heart of Jesus. And it becomes just a wonderful thing. The Hebrew writer says this in Hebrews chapter 10. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It is a process. We are transformed. We are being transformed. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should be in the process of being transformed closer and closer to the heart of Jesus. Now, I want to say something quickly because I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't believe that salvation is a process. I believe that when someone gives their life to Jesus, claims Jesus as their Lord when they repent of their sins, when they confess Jesus as their Lord, when they take advantage of the blood of Christ through baptism like we read about in Romans chapter 6 and other places, I think that's instantaneous. I think God takes that individual from darkness to light, from, from lost to, to saved. 
But then he begins the process of transforming that soul, that individual, that heart, more and more to be like Jesus. It's a growth process. So John says, first, you need to know you're a child of God. Second, you need to know that God is in the process of doing something in your life. He's up to something, making you holy. And the third thing that John talks about as far as being in the transformation process is we need to know the beauty of being a Christian. John says, don't miss the obvious blessings of brotherhood. Verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we pass from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. And then verse 16. Let me put it on the board. This is how we know what love is. You know, John is talking about love. Okay, what does love really look like? John says, glad you asked. And I keep telling you to remember who's doing the writing here. This is the Apostle John. He's the one who had his feet washed with the others there in the upper room. He's the one who tried to stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked him to pray with him that night. He's the one who went to the house of the high priest. He's the one who stood at the foot of the cross. He saw Jesus crucified. He heard Jesus say, it's finished. He's the one who ran to an empty tomb. He's the one who, who walked with the risen Savior. I mean, if we're going to listen to somebody, John's a good guy to listen to. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us for God's greater than our hearts and He knows everything. As we think about the transformation process, I want you to think about the beauty of the Lord's church. The beauty of the body of Christ. Because I know it's really easy sometimes to get frustrated because of our own um, shortcomings or or, or, or maybe our, you know, our own hang-ups, our own pettiness. But I love the church. I love the Lord's church. Don't miss the obvious. Don't miss the tremendous blessings that we have in fellowship with each other. We're brothers. We're sisters. You know, the church exists so that we can encourage each other. The church exists so we can, we can grow together. The church exists so we can stand together. The church exists so we can share the good news of Jesus with our friends and our neighbors. You might not have remembered, today's one fellowship. We don't have class after this. We're inviting everyone to go over to the Family Life Center or out in the lobby or the parking lot, I don't care where, but spend some time with each other. And this isn't to give the teachers a break. This is very intentional. Because we understand how important it is for us to know each other. We can't love each other if we don't know each other. We're doing life together. I need you. We need each other. 
So I really want to encourage you when we're done in this room to, to continue our worship in fellowship. Uh, the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the children's classes are going to meet as usual, um, but the adults are just going to spend some time fellowshipping. Why? Because we're the church. We're not perfect. We don't do things perfectly. But we represent the body of Christ. To Tampa, to this neighborhood, we are the ambassadors of the body of Christ. And we need to be proud of that. I'm proud of the church. I'm proud of the church of Christ. I am proud of the Bay Area Church of Christ. If you want to complain about the church, please don't complain to me. I'm a pretty tolerant guy, but I won't tolerate that. I don't want to hear somebody bash the Lord's church. Now, you can bash me, and you can criticize me all you like. I'll probably join in, but don't criticize the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus loves the church. And he knew how essential the church would be in the lives of lost people who, who don't know him yet. Look again at verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. As the church, we've got to demonstrate God's love. Not just talk about it, but love with actions and truth. Maybe you heard about the, the guy who was working in his garage one day and he, he cut his hand pretty badly. And uh, he had an old towel there and he wrapped the towel around it and then he looked and thought, I probably ought to go to the emergency room. So he walked in and told his wife, uh, hey, I cut my hand. Oh, it's bleeding pretty bad. I think I'm going to go to the emergency room. She takes a look at it and goes, oh yeah, you better get to the emergency room. Do you want me to come with you? No, I can drive myself. That's fine. So he drives himself with this bloody towel around his hand to the emergency room. He walks into the emergency room and there's two doors. One says men, one says women. Well, he goes through the door that says men and he finds himself in another room with two doors. One says under 50, the other says over 50. Well, he's not 50 yet, so he goes through the under 50 door and he finds himself in another room with two doors. One says above the waist and the other says below the waist. He says, well, this is, I guess, above the waist. So he goes through that door and he finds himself in a room with another door, or two more doors. And one says external, the other says internal. Well, this is external. So he goes through that door and he finds himself in a room with two more doors. One says major, one says minor. He says, well, it's bleeding pretty bad and it really does hurt, but I know people come to the emergency room with a lot worse things than, you know, a cut hand. So he went through the door that said minor. The door shut, and he realizes he's back in the parking lot. <laughs> Not very far from where he parked his car. So he went over to his car. He got in. He drove himself home. He walked back into the kitchen. His wife said, I thought you were going to the emergency room. He said, I did. And she said, well... Wasn't there anyone there? I mean, didn't anyone help you? Didn't they do anything? He said, no, they didn't do a thing. But they sure were organized. <laughs> they sure were organized. My prayer is that there, there aren't people who come through those doors and sit down in these pews next to us 
and worship with us and turn around and walk back out and say, they sure were organized. You know, the singing was pretty good and the place was clean and there were hand towels in the restrooms and the preacher was dressed nice and there was coffee in the fellowship hall. They sure were organized. Did they help you any? No, they didn't really help. No one seemed to care. I walked back out, the same person I was when I walked in, but they sure were organized. I pray that doesn't happen here. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're miracle workers. But the power of God's Word, the power of God's people, the love of Christ, the love of the saints, that should change people. This should be, this has to be, a healing place for everybody. Uh, I hope that we're encouraged to allow God to transform us so that we can be the, the man of God, or the woman of God, the child of God, the, the ambassador of Christ that God created us to be. We are the children of God. God is up to something in our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus especially, He is up to something. And He's given us a whole family to help us accomplish what He's put before us. Don't give up on the process. Understand that you are being transformed. That God is up to something in the world. I think He's up to something in the Bay Area. And He's up to something in your life as well. As a church family, if we can help you in any way with something that might be going on with your life today, your family, uh, maybe it had nothing to do with this sermon, but you just need the prayers of people who love you. Or maybe today's the day you decide, you know, I'm, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I, I want to do what I know to do. There's going to be some people here at the front of the auditorium to meet with you, and we'll talk and pray with you, whatever we can do. Meet us here. Probably stand and sing.